quickly, etc. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and faileth not, and their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance, and they take up the timbrel and harp, and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray to him? Lo, their good is not in their hand, though counsel of the wicked is far from me. So keep, 16, lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me, so far. How oft is the candle of the wicked put out? And how oft cometh their destruction upon them? God distributeth sorrows in his anger. They are as stubble before the wind, and as chaff that the storm carrieth away. God layeth up his iniquity for his children. He rewardeth him, and he shall know it. And his eyes shall see his destruction, and he shall drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what pleasure hath he in his house after him, when the number of his months is cut off in the midst? Shall any teach God knowledge, seeing he judges those that are high? One dieth in his full strength, being holy at ease and quiet. His breasts are full of milk, and his bones are moistened with marrow. And another dieth in his bitterness of soul, and never eateth with pleasure. They shall lie down alike in the dust, and the worms shall cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and the devices which you wrongfully imagine against me. For you say, Where is the house of the prince, and where is the dwelling places of the wicked? Have you not asked them that go by the way, and do you not know their tokens, that the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction? They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. Who shall declare his way to his face, and who shall repay him what he hath done? Yet shall he be brought to the grave, and shall remain in the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet unto him, and every man shall draw after him, and there are innumerable before him. How then comfort ye me in vain, seeing in your answers there remaineth falsehood. May the Lord's blessing to the reading of his word. Zophar is noticeably absent after this response from Job. We do not hear, I don't think, from Zophar again in, in the book of Job. Let us pray. Lord, help me tonight. May I say nothing amiss. Forgive me of sin. Empty me of self. And may I be filled with your spirit tonight. Thank you for electricity being back on for air conditioning. We thank you for that, for the, for the comfort it gives, heat in the winter, etc., Lord, we thank you for all these good things you've bestowed upon us. May we rejoice in the next few moments. May we think about Job's response and the truths we find therein. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I like what Dr. Calvert says. He doesn't imagine that these three friends are at one another's throats and shouting in, in shrill voices, etc. He says he hears a pause in 21.1, and Job answered and said, Hear diligently my speech, and let this be your consolations. It's, it's like he's speaking this very slowly, because these men have, have said these things. Shall, can I go through this one more time? That I am not evil, and I'm not being punished because I've done wrong. God has far exceeded your narrow mindset of what God is. Listen carefully to my words. It is impressive that Job refuses to simply take the remarks of Zophar of the ascetic tongue on the chin. 
He did not simply shrug and say, oh, well, whatever. No, this time passivity is gone. Job is going to respond to Zophar's condemning of him. Remember, the whole condemnation is they believe that you have to have been wicked to suffer what Job has suffered. Job says, I'm not wicked. They're saying Job's lying. That's a basic summary of what their mindset is during these responses, these debates. 21.1, and Job answered and said, how diligently my speech, or hear diligent in my speech, and let this be your consolation. The word, hear diligent in my speech. Listen up for a change to my speech. It's an imperative. Now, we know what imperatives are. We know that. There's something, a command, if you would. You listen to me. Not unlike when a military person comes in front of the new recruits. Now, listen up. This is what we're going to do. Listen up, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. This is where we're going. The, what, the, just digress for just a moment, though. Why this dogmatic, decisive, devastating determination on the part of these chief friends to continually this verbal avalanche against Mr. Job? Why? One cannot read the debates between Job and the free friends without being struck by the steadfast persistence and seeking the Job to confess. They seem scarcely to listen to his arguments and never address them when they answer him. Have you noticed that? They, they don't respond to Job. They keep spouting the same thing with different wordage, basically. We find that the, the, the failure is so obvious that even the narrator, look at Job 32.3, just a few pages over. 32.3, look what the narrator says. Also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found no answer and yet condemned Job, Elihu, in 11. Behold, 32, 11, Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons whilst ye searched out what to say. Finding that the, and in verse 12, Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or that answered his words. So the narrator and Elihu say, Listen, you've not responded to Job. You have badgered him, I think this is the word badger, but you've done these things, and why were these men, these three friends, so insistent upon getting Job to confess? And I like this little commentary from Leach and Archer. He says these words, an adequate psychological motive for their persistence in carrying on the controversy with Job over so many chapters is to be found in the dilemma which his catastrophic disaster had placed them, the three friends, if a man of such high reputation could suffer so devastating a misfortune, their own security was imperiled by the possibility the same thing could happen to them. Their basic motive of attempting to elicit from Job a confession of sin was to establish their own sense of security. If in point of fact Job had been guilty of some grievous sin of which the public had no knowledge, his overwhelming disaster could be easily understood as the retribution of the righteous God. Failing to secure from him any such confession, despite all their diligent efforts to compel him, um, admission from him of guilt, they felt unable to return home relieved and reassured that calamity would be kept from their door if they only lived a good life, end of quote. And that explains, I think, in a large part, these three friends. If Job, who's, un who's been per a meek man, miles in the, in the east, and such a godly man, it happened to him, and he's done nothing wrong, it might happen to me. And so they, that's why they're trying to, if they can just get Job to confess Job is guilty, then that relieves me, I can go home, and 
I can rest and relax and I'm going to live right. And God's not going to bring that on me. So actually, chapter 6, 21 sort of gives uh, credence to that mindset. Chapter 6, verse 21 says for us here, For now ye are no thing. Ye see my casting down and are afraid. Yes, they were afraid that God might bring something like this on them. So Job says that so far, so far, so far, however I pronounce it, to hear diligently when I speak, a.k.a. listen up for once, perhaps. Suffer me. Bear with me. It was another imperative because people who are guilty of making false accusations are usually very poor listeners. They're not known for patiently gleaning truthful information. They simply tell you what they want you to know. They don't want to hear the other side. We see that all across America all the time. The one side is so convinced that they are right. They don't want to hear the other side and listen to someone else's opinion on anything. You can prove the proof is there, but the proof's in the pudding. They don't want to eat the pudding. They say, well, that's just that pudding sour. So over here is what really we want to do. And he throws in, and after I've spoken, mock on. Mock on back over in chapter 21, if you would there, please. 21. After I've spoken, mock on. A well-timed counterpunch. After I have given my words, then you can continue on and mock on. In verse 3, after I've spoken, do those things. It's a Hebrew sarcastic imperative. After you've heard me out, go ahead and mock it. At least give me, though, the, my day in court and listen patiently. You can imagine, if you ever talk to someone or watch someone who's, uh, someone's talking to someone and they're listening in and they roll their eyes or they shake their head or all those kinds of things, or disagreement, we imagine that those three friends, when Job was speaking, were like, oh, I can't believe he's saying it, or, or I'd like to, mm-hmm. I'll imagine they were doing that versus this respectful thing, but you can just, oh, listen, here he goes again. If he would just confess, if Job would just admit he's done wrong, we can go on from here. He can get forgiveness and repentance. But people who are false, falsely accusing someone don't necessarily want to do that. They want to, they want to direct the narrative. Hear diligently my speech. Bear with me. And thirdly, in verse 5, mark me. And that would be look upon or to look upon me, attentive look, attentively look on me, on my sufferings, my disease, my losses. See if I'm a proper object of respect and mockery. He was not. He was not that. Now by now the three critics have been lecturing, I imagine, and he wants, Job says, please give me your attention as I give these words. And they don't really want to do those kind of things. Three points, source, suffer, and saying. Number one is the source. The first part, he really responds in kind to Zophar's chapter 20 speech. In 17 to 16, 7 to 16, I'm sorry, 21, 7 to 16. Who says the wicked always die young? That's the source. Who says the wicked always die young? And 21 verse 7, wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Now, it's said of some creatures in our own country that they have nine lives. I think some of the ones in our house would have had 99 lives, and it just won't go over the Rainbow Bridge. I felt that way sometimes. Not, of course, with the ones we have now, because they're happy and all kinds of good things, the cats we have at home. But we find then that our people just, they, have, they can outlive their time, it seems. It's like, for example, Moses reigned the longest. Sorry, Moses. Manasseh reigned the longest of all the kings of Judah. Yeah, he's probably the most ungodly one of all of them. Pope John, Pope John the Twelfth 
During his reign, the Vatican was called the pornocracy because he had all these uh, women of ill repute and he was a very profligate uh, pope and did many wicked things. He evidently lived a long time. One guy said he was willing to stoop lower than anybody else. And so that was, that was his claim to fame. And yet he lived on. It, we can't make this... Uh, who says that wicked always die young? That is not true. That's what Job's point is. Verse 8, their seed is established in their sight with them. And their offspring before their eyes. Commentator Bradley says, We see beneath the eastern imagery the picture of the prosperous and powerful family in all lands and ages founded in violence or by fraud or wrong. They do not see their children die, says the childless parent. They are stretched upon no rack of lingering pain, says the tortured leper. And yet their family goes on. We can't simply make a generalization that all wicked families die young. And that's what? The intimation of the three friends has been, verse 9, if you would there please, their houses are safe from fear, neither as the rod of God upon them, or is the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and caileth not, their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth little, their little ones like a flock, and their children dance, and they take the timbrel and harp and rejoice to the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. It's not like they have a lingering death. The realistic analysis is... Unbelievers can have a pretty good life here on earth and it have seen it. And you see it for yourself. Seemingly, they have, they have no problems. Seemingly, they, they are on the right side of history. Seemingly, in the world's mindset, they've got it made. Matter of fact, we, they do not know God, 14. Therefore, they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. That would almost be a summary of a lot of people in America, even us as a nation, as a whole. Do you, have you not seen, I know you've seen in, in biblical history in Israel, there were, I'm sure some, we know there were people when Jesus was crucified that loved him and would not. We know that when, when Elijah was, was stealing all alone, there were still 7,000. We know that the people of Israel, their religious leaders rejected Christ, but there were some who, as you well know, trusted him. And there's, in our country, we are as seemingly as a whole, we're, we're wanting to push God out. But there's still some of us who worship God. But yet our country as a whole, we have maybe as a whole generally rejected God. That verse right there speaks to us in many regards. I know you and I haven't. But when the leaders of a nation make decisions... I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people in Russia that disagree with Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin, what he's done. And yet they're still Russian and they're still in the country and they're going to reap the benefits or less than benefits of following him. Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? What audacious words. Of the, of the one who's upholding them by the word of his power. <clears throat> the truth of the matter is so far, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. 16. Job says, listen, the counsel of the wicked is far from me. In other words, I am not wicked. I'm not, I am sick. Nobody, including you, so far knows why I'm sick, but nevertheless, I am sick. It's a huge mystery, but get this straight. I am definitely not in the category of the wicked in the story. I added in the story. But that's the idea. So, source, who says the wicked always die young? We see examples all the time. That's not true. That's what basically summary. Two, suffer. Where is the proof that the godless always suffer calamity? 
Now, just because they do not have the Lord God in their lives does not mean that all in that camp go to an early grave. Furthermore, they're not always suffering calamity. Follow Joe's logic. Look at verse 17. How oft is the candle of the wicked put out? How oft cometh their destruction? God distributeth destruction upon them. God distributeth sorrows in his anger. They are as stubble before the wind and as a chaff before the storm carrieth away. God layeth up his iniquity for his children. He rewardeth him. He shall know it. His eyes shall see his destruction. And he shall drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what pleasure hath he in his house after him? And when the number of his months is cut off in the midst, shall any teach God knowledge, seeing he judges those that are high? Job's saying, basically, your argument does not hold water so far. There are numerous opposing examples of what you're suggesting. Interestingly, I think I see this, we see a similar case in Ecclesiastes. You want to turn over there, chapter 8, verse 11. Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. Because... Sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And, and that is the idea that they're... Are you following the logic here? Because every time a person does wrong and he's not immediately judged for it, well, I got away with that that time. I'll try it again. If I steal $10, that works out pretty good. I'll steal another $10, and pretty soon I'm going to steal $20. And if you're not careful, I might go up to $100. If I'm not caught and punished, the lack of quick consequences per- promotes or prompts the wrongdoer to do more of it. We find Job had the idea in his mind that he tells so far that calamity does not always follow close on the heels of the unbeliever. That uh, you give the pergosion that, that passed this week, his name, I can't pronounce his last name. I'm not sure. He was, I think, a pretty, a pretty nefarious character. It was involved with Vladimir Putin. But you remember about a month ago, he led a coup against Putin and got stopped. And from that point on, his name was Mud. This past Wednesday morning, I think it was, this past Wednesday, his plane, which he was in, was shot. Or, oh, somehow it crashed accidentally, I'm sure. And so now the number one person who stood against Putin is now no longer so he had lasted, I'm not sure how long he had been, but from what I understood, a little bit understood, he was a pretty, uh, they were pretty seriously involved in war and killing those uh, maybe mercenaries type. I'm not sure, I don't know his. But finally, it did happen. He did go to his reward or lack thereof punishment. We sometimes have put into a box, we have stereotyped people, if you would. We, we think of unbelievers that, we sometimes get a little bit arrogant and think, well, they just must not be on the know or they're not as smart as we are. There's a lot of unbelievers that are exponentially wiser than you and I, typically. But just because they have not seen... You're fortunate. We're fortunate. We have seen God's light and we've responded positively to it. But there's a lot of people who are very intelligent, book-wise, if you would, but have not seen or responded or have rejected and sometimes the, the lost live easier lives than us. They're not constantly judged or taken uh, from the earth for, uh, uh, when they turn 40. Many of them live well. Asaph struggled with that. Read Psalm 73. This true story is told of a pastor and a young deacon. They were, they were going to go visiting one of the most uh, notorious unbelievers had come to their church, signed the visitor's card, and they were responsible to go visit him that Saturday morning. 
And so they decided to drop by and talk to him and share the good news. So they rode together in the same car and they arrived at this exclusive residential section. They wound their way around this really long driveway and circled around in front of this really large house. Their kids were playing outside. They had a well, had a, the lawn was meticulously manicured. Everything was spotless. They could see three really expensive cars in the driveway and they saw in the fourth garage a red Ferrari sitting there. They looked back and saw this beautiful immaculate swimming pool in the back. And they got out of their car and they saw inside this man was talking in his study and he was laughing and having a good time with his friends. And, and the young deacon turns to the pastor and says, now, now tell me again what kind of good news we have for this one. Well, the good news is eternity is found in Christ. You may have all the things on this. It's the rich man and Lazarus. Let us not think and let's not get... I don't want to say jealous or angry at they're doing the unbeliever is simply doing what's best for him. Do you not sometimes struggle with doing what you want to do rather than what God would have you to do? Yes. The unbeliever has no qualms. He's just going to do what he thinks is best for him. That's, that's what he is to do. That's what he does. If he lives in immorality, it's what he wants to do. I mean, why should he do differently? Now, I know you shouldn't you shouldn't do that because of what the Bible says, but they're not following the Bible, so why should they be held accountable for that? Never forget, the good news is about life beyond the grave. I thought about that photographer in 1981 who made all his plans to take all those pictures and forgot the return trip for the plane to come back and get him and had to end up committing suicide. I guess I should have planned more for my departure. I guess he should have. Believing that good news does not mean you will suddenly become affluent in the society, nor does it mean that you do not uh, believe... uh, do not, if you do not believe that you are doomed to some poverty or life in prison, if you don't believe, our theology needs to be clearly understood and articulated apart from economic lifestyles or personal preferences. The person in the gutter or the person in the largest mansion still need to hear the gospel. Michael Bloomberg still needs to trust the Lord personally for himself and get over spending his money to change our own country. He needs, he needs, that's what they need. The leaders of our nation, so many need the Lord. That is answered. I'm not talking, it's, it's the, all leaders in our country. They need the Lord. I trust you're praying that our leaders respond to Christ and, 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 and change. See, Zophar has missed it. Look at you, Job. Look at the, the condition you're in. Sick as you are, destitute as you have become, you obviously have sin in your life. You, you just not told us about it. Just tell us about it. Get it off your chest. Confess your sin. And of course, we'll feel better about it. And you can get right with God. But see, Job hadn't sinned. And he says, no, that's not true. It's not uncommon for the wicked to live very prosperously or for those who know God to suffer. We, 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 if you don't, you know, if you, uh, the faith, name it, claim it. If you don't have enough faith, you won't go be, well, you didn't get healed because you don't have enough faith. I'm telling you, it takes a lot more faith to continue trusting God and not be healed that it has some kind of supposed glorious healing, it's the faith to trust God in the day-by-day things. Remember then, in death, all distinctions disappear. Can you imagine? I think people, they probably, you know, when I stand before God, I'm going to be in the upper level up there, and we're going to stand before God, and there's going to be a lot of the elites with me when I stand up there, and we're going to give our complaint before God, and we're going to tell Him why we should be going to heaven. No, it's going to be, it's going to be, 
all level at the cross. We're all in need of salvation. Thirdly, not only sore suffer, it's the same. How can you say, starting in 23, that death always falls hard on the wicked? Chapter 21, verse 23. Let's start reading there, continuing on. One dieth in his full strength, being holy at ease and quiet. His breasts are full of milk, and his bones are moistened with marrow. In uh, a marginal reading and some past uh, renderings, uh, the breasts are full of milk, milk pails. The milk pails are full of milk. That's the idea. It's not trying to do some transgender thing here. Please don't think that. This is, and it's only used one time in all the Old Testament, from what I understand. It means in the Arabic to lie down around water as cattle do, uh, like the place where cattle and flocks lie down around water. And the passage would say the resting places of herds are full or abound with milk. So what is that saying? Well, milk, butter, honey was always a picture of prosperity in the Bible. The emblems of plenty and prosperity, many uh, we would render this even his fat. And so we find here that the, these, these people who, uh, the ungodly, wow, his breasts are full of milk and his bones are moistened with marrow. And another dieth in the bitterness of his soul and never eateth but pleasure. Job is agonizing over these questions, but he is actually agonizing in a good way. God would rather have us complain than be indifferent and try to, or to handle his truths arrogantly and to reduce them to dead maxims, if you would. Job's anguish over not understanding what God is doing is proof that he is not indifferent or not arrogant. It's like people who say, well, I'm just, I, I don't feel saved today. I think pretty much is the people who are genuinely saved who start, if you're not saved, you don't care. It's the people who are, are saved, you know, just because I want to I please the Lord and I know what I've done today. And, and, but your salvation is never to be based on your feelings. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? Yes. Did you for ask him to forgive you of your sin and repent? Yes. Then based upon the authority, if you've called on him in repentance and faith, he has come into your heart and life and saved you. But pastor, you don't know. I don't have to know what you did. The Holy Spirit does. But he, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're basing your faith, on, I feel saved today or don't feel saved today. That's, what has Christ promised? you have you called upon him is he your savior yes i can explain to you why he loves me why he loves you so much the bible says so matter of fact he loved you so much he died on the cross that you might have life everlasting and he will not leave us or forsake us they shall not lie down 26 alike in the dust and the worm shall cover them behold i know your thoughts and the devices which you wrongfully imagine against me behold i know your thoughts it is i see that you are not satisfied and you're deposed still to maintain your former position You'll be ready to ask, where are the proofs of the prosperity of the wicked? Where are the palaces of the mighty? Where are the dwelling places of ungodly men? They, they still want to, he think, uh, Job understands their purpose. Not so. Job does not agree with what they're, they're thinking. For you say, where is the house of the prince? And where are the dwelling places of the wicked? Have you not asked them that go by the way? And do you not know their tokens? Have you not asked them? In that era, it was like if you pass into another country, you could come back and tell people what goes on. So, I, I, so I, having been to India, I can tell you that once you arrive in India, 
It's a different culture, for sure, but there's a, you can almost speak English and get it almost anywhere in India, in the bigger cities, because a lot of them know English, you can get by with that. You go over to Mexico, it's a different culture, you might need to know, but I would, different countries, and in Romania, you really need, or Moldova, if you're on the street, you don't have as much English, etc. But I can tell you what that is like, because I've been there, and maybe you've been to other countries that I've never been to, and you can go back and say, listen, here's what God has done there. So what Job is saying People who've gone to other countries, they can vouch for God's work in people's lives and tell you what I'm saying to you is right and what the generalizations you have made are not right. Have you asked them that go by the way? Do all the ungodly people get have short lives? Have you asked the people who've gone to Moldova, Romania, India, you know, Russia? 30. Not the wicked is reserved to the day of destruction they shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. The day of wrath. The passage, therefore, seems to be decisive to prove that he held to a state of retribution beyond the grave where the inequalities of the present life will be corrected. Now, I will tell you, you and I, we are hoping for this in our self-righteousness sometimes. Listen, he's going to get it. I don't want to stand in that person. And I know there's a lot of people's shoes. I don't want to, you may not want to stand in my shoes. I may not want to stand in your shoes, but I know I don't want to stand in Vladimir Putin's shoes. He stands before God. I know I don't want to stand in Saddam Hussein's shoes when he stands before God. Mousy tongue, Genghis Khan, etc., etc. Adolf Hitler, can you imagine what he's going to face Adolf Hitler when he stands before God? Do you imagine the punishment he's going to get for eternity for leading that? And him thinking he's done the right thing? Well, there's arrogance. But we're going to have enough of our own. When we stand before God, what have you done for me? That's going to be the question for us. Not judging. Our sin has been judged at the cross, but we're not going to be spending eternity in hell. Or, or we're not going to have to have the sin burned off because he paid that price once and for all. To God be the glory of great things he hath done. 31, who shall declare his way to, the fa- to his face? And who shall repay him what he hath done? That is the face of the wicked. Who shall dare to rise up and openly charge him with guilt? The idea is that, that none would dare to do it, and that therefore the wicked man was not punished according to his character, and was reserved to a day of future wrath. Someday there will be accounting but often, in our, as you well know in our life, there are people who live lives of uh, sinful lives and never held accountable in this life, but they will one day be held. 32, we shall be brought to the grave and he shall remain in the tomb. So far you've missed it. In my case, I am not in this category of the wicked ones. Contrary to the, Smick says, contrary to the description of the wicked in chapters 8 and 20, the ungodly man is often buried with the highest honors. The tomb, is it, is it the tomb of Muhammad that is worshipped almost? And, and they go to his, or you can go different these different graves and, and stop by people, whatever, and, and sort of give reverence for all their lives. I'm telling you, you want to go to the grave of Christ, it's empty. I can tell you it's empty. And we have the right relationship right now with him because he is still alive forevermore. 34, he closes out, How then comfort ye me in vain, seeing in your answers, there remaineth falsehood. Treachery, fraud, that's what that word means. How in the world, Zophar, are you going to comfort me when what you're saying is just wrong? Zophar, your answers remain fully of tre- full of treachery. They cannot be counted on. I am not as you have falsely accused me. You need to hear the truth since you are not saying it nor hearing it. 
comfort in vain. Uh, Barnes draws the application for the pastor, the minister of the gospel, who has, who has unsettled, erroneous, and false views of the character and government of God, is poorly qualified for his station and will be a miserable comforter to those who are on trial. Truth alone sustains the soul in affliction. Truth only can inspire confidence in God. Truth only can break the force of sorrow and enable the sufferer to look up to God and to heaven with confidence and joy. The breaking the strongholds in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, I think a lot part of that is truth. It is truth to, to cast down these ideologies, to cast those down. And, and what is the truth found in God's word? It, that's where we stand. And concluding thoughts before we pray. I like this. It's interesting. Fleeing from God to God. Dr. Talbert closed up this chapter. Amidst despair, desolation, and hopeless isolation, Job's faith has been supremely tried. Like a caged bird that catches a glimpse of blue sky beyond its bars, his faith drives him to hope in what he knows but cannot attain. From Job's limited vantage point, God is the aggressor, but also his only defender. His loss of God has made him hopeless, yet God remains his only hope. Satan's charge of insincere piety or of humility out of self-interest might have stood against some lesser man or woman. Satan's most vicious assaults could not drive Job from God, but the view from where Job sits is even more astonishing. He perceives correctly that he interprets it, but he interprets it wrongly, that all his misery is from the hand of God. Yet even God cannot drive him away from God. Job looks around him and seems to hear only hard words from God, yet still he says, in essence, Lord, to whom shall I go? Job already understands that God later reiterates in his word, there is nowhere else to go because there is no one else to go to. Because there is no one else. So Job will cling to God even if he slays him. So who are you going to? If you're not going to go to God in the trials, who is, well, there's no one else. God cannot drive Job away from God. And may our troubles not drive us away from him. A little paraphrase of these last couple of verses. Therefore, though you slay me, I will trust you, for I will pursue my I will if for if you pursue my iniquity, I will flee from you to yourself. And I will shelter myself from your wrath in your shadow. And to the skirts of your mercies, I will lay hold until you have mercy on me, and I will not let you go until you bless me. Where's Job going to go? It's to the Savior. To the Savior. May the Lord help us to do that. If you want to be an encouragement to hurting people, someone has said, try to see things through their eyes. Be humble enough to admit there might be other points of view. See, that's the three friends. There's only one point of view, our point of view, collected together. We know God. God punishes the wicked. Job, you need to confess. End of story. Job says, no, you're wrong. I've not sinned. I don't know what God's doing, but I'm going to still trust God, even if it means I lose my life. May that be our cry. May we hold fast to him in every day of our lives. Teach us your way. Let's pray together. Heads about, eyes closed. Lord, we thank you for this text of Scripture. We thank you for the book of Job, how uh, teaching it is, pedagogical, pedagogical, if you would, on us about how we are to walk with you. You are an awesome God. You are so powerful, so mighty, and so caring. 
And Lord, shame on us if we think we can put you and your works into a nice, tidy little box, explain everything, explain you. How audacious of us to even think we can explain all that you're doing. So Lord, may we just lay aside our arrogance and humbly say, Lord, we're going to trust. And may all these things that God allows to our lives help us to become more Christ-like. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In closing, our theme for this series, 453, please. If you will, please.